We all bring whatever food we have in our own homes and we share it with others. Some of us have more than we need on some weeks and some of us have less. And when we go home each week, we've evened it out a bit. Some of us leave with our pockets lighter and some of us with our purses filled. We're careful about what we say and how loudly we say it. The Roman Empire has ears everywhere. The messages that Jesus taught were so threatening to this empire that they killed him. And every once in a while, as we're meeting, as we're enjoying fellowship together, as one of us says something about this Jesus, we we look over our shoulder and wonder, if I say the wrong thing, will they kill me too? And so we ask Lindsay Allen to stand guard by the door and the window to make sure no one is listening outside. She's, She's our church bouncer. It's a thing. Some are called to be apostles, some prophets, some bouncers. Um, We are all recent converts, first-generation believers. Our families did not follow the way, but we do. We've been captivated by the stories of Jesus that we've heard, the one who lived and died and then was actually raised from the dead. It gives us hope like nothing we've ever known, and we can't get enough of this Jesus. At first, we heard that only people who were Jewish could follow him, that we ourselves would have to become Jewish if we wanted Jesus to accept us at all. He he was a Jew after all, wasn't he? We thought maybe our husbands and sons would need to be circumcised, that we would need to begin keeping the Jewish laws about food and washing and purity. But then, then we got this amazing news that Jesus accepts us just the way we are. And thank God, because none of the men were really signing up for that circumcision thing. And even though now we know that Jesus accepts us the way we are, we wonder if the Jewish Christians will ever really accept us. Will we ever have fellowship with them and be part of their family? To accept Jesus is one thing, and to be accepted by him, but to be accepted by his followers, that's quite another. And today as we gather, there is a special sense of excitement because a letter has arrived and we're dying to find out what's in it. It's not the kind of letter written to just one person. It's not even written to just one church. Eventually, this letter will be called the letter to the Ephesians. But right now, it's just circulating among house churches in the area. We're passing it around and reading it out loud, and everyone's talking about it, and now it's arrived for us. Today is our turn. And so we've gathered because we're going to sit and listen while Rachel reads it out loud. Why out loud? Because most of us can't read. And and as she reads, her voice comes to a passage that seems to be written just to us. It says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded, without citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Remember, it says, of course we remember. 
We remember all too well that feeling of being on the outside without hope, without promise. But now that we have Christ, we have been transformed. And just like this letter says, but but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And get this part. For he himself is our peace. Everyone gasps at that line. He himself is our peace. Lindsay jumps up to check the door and make sure no one who is walking by heard and might turn us in. We all glance at each other's faces just for a moment, wondering if there could be a spy among us to report what we've just heard. Anyone who would tell the Roman authorities what has been said. We look doubtfully at Taylor. Taylor has always seemed a little shifty. What is Taylor hiding? I love that I can say Taylor and mean about 10 people at the same time. (laughs) Popular name in that decade. He himself is our peace. If that line was discovered, we would certainly be questioned, probably flogged, maybe arrested and imprisoned. What is so controversial about that line? Christ himself is our peace. It seems like it could go on a greeting card for us. Well, on the feasts and festival days in Rome, especially on the birthday of the emperor, who is considered to be a god or godlike at the least, the emperor's accomplishments would be lauded and celebrated and shouted in the streets, and in public speeches and public spaces, people would proclaim, he is our peace. The emperor is our peace. He is our peace bringer. The Roman brand of peace, of course, is brought through military dominance. And when necessary, terror would be used to stop any disruptions of this peace, specifically the terror of crucifixion. It's given to anyone foolish enough to challenge the empire's brand of peace. And here we are daring to proclaim out loud that true peace has been brought at last by one that they crucified. This is a letter written to shake empires. These words are shocking to us, but they're thrilling. They're exciting because we know that Roman peace is no peace at all. And we know that Christ has true peace. We know somehow the first time we hear these words out loud that they are more true than any other words we've ever heard. We have, up to this point, been a community defined by the hostile culture outside of our church walls. We've been a church leaning into our faith by having to lean against the tide of the world we live in. And somehow this letter lets us know that it's right and that Rome, for all of its strength and power, is wrong. And this strange man who is writing to us is writing words that are true. And the most amazing thing about the writer of this letter is that he himself is in prison at this very moment. He is locked up, and yet his words are pouring out to us and to other churches in other houses like ours, filled with more and more people who are hungry for the news of Jesus. They have locked up his body, but it just makes his message travel farther and faster. This man... Paul, they call him now, has been brave enough to defy both Roman power and the Jewish conventions of faith, letting outsiders like us know that we are welcome. 
that we are welcome to Christ and in his church. I mean, listen to these words in this letter, words that feel like they're written straight to our hearts. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. There's that word again. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Those words are about us, about you and me, those who have felt like outsiders for so long, those of us packed closely together in this little church meeting. We are actually included here. We have access to the Father by the Spirit, it says. And this is all so new to us. On one hand, there's Rome. Rome is good at building things, building empires, building walls, building prisons to hold anyone that disagrees. But on the other hand, there are the Jewish Christians, good at building walls of rules and systems and ways to climb to God that we can never reach. We have been squeezed by the Roman culture outside the church and the Jewish culture inside the church, and we never really felt like we belonged. Not until today. Not until this letter written to us. It's one thing to talk about conquering the tyranny of Rome, but conquering the tyranny of the human heart with all the walls that we build up against each other, that would take a true miracle. Imagine that you were in church the first day this letter was read, hearing for the first time the idea that you belong that you truly belong to God and to other Christians and to an empire that will outlast Rome. Imagine getting this news. Your heart would leap within you. You are no longer a second-class citizen. You have access to the Father through the Spirit. That day would be a day you would never forget. Now, imagine that you're in church. The year is two. Not that too, 2002. This might not be as hard to imagine for you. Imagine that you're in church in the year 2002, and this church looks a lot different than the other one that you imagine. This is a modern church building that's been built in a traditional neighborhood, filled with ranch-style homes and dotted with grocery stores and family-style restaurants. The church is well-known in the area. It's a landmark that people point to when they give directions. It's a beautiful building. It's a sanctuary filled with stained glass, a huge fellowship hall, and the most beautiful room in this place, as in many churches, is, of course, the church parlor. Churches all built around the same time all have a parlor, and it's a very special place. It's used mostly by the women's club for special events and wedding showers, never never for children's events. There are strict rules about no red punch in the parlor, not on that beige carpet. And across from the parlor onto our historic building, we've added in the last year or so a large gymnasium with a weight room and a basketball court. And we went into a great deal of debt to build this addition. And we're counting on it to bring people from the community to come and join us, to join our church. But we really want the right kind of people with the right kind of jobs and the right kind of money so that the debt that we've gone into will not swallow us up. 
The community has changed a lot in the years since the church was built. Apartment complexes have popped up all around the church, some of them even blocking the view from a couple of streets. There are taquerias and Mexican bakeries on every corner since most of those moving into our neighborhood speak Spanish as a first language, some of them as an only language. And our church is generous to this community. We put on huge carnivals several times a year with free food and free games and free prizes. We call this outreach. That means ministry done by those of us inside the church to those outside. But there's a lot of us doing a lot of ministry to a lot of them and not a lot of connection between the two. The whole neighborhood will turn out for a Saturday carnival, but none of them come back for worship on Sundays, and we're confused by that. When they do show up, it's not on Sunday at all, but during the week, when they know the church office will be open. They come to the church office and ask for help. Their lights are about to be turned off. They're out of formula. They've lost their jobs. They're about to be evicted. We're, we're a big church. We have a lot of resources. Can we help? And, and so many people have come every day that the church secretary can't get her real work done for the lines that form. And so we open an assistance office. And two volunteers sit at a desk every day handing out vouchers for the electric company and gift cards to Walmart and directions to the food bank. And the line stretches down the hall some days and during the holidays, around the building. So imagine that you're in this church, and one day you're walking down the hall to your office. I forgot to mention, you work in this church. Every day you walk down the hall, and you have to literally step around people who are in line for assistance in order to get to your office where you get the work of ministry done. And that day, as you're stepping around people in the hallway, something catches your eye. It's a baby's head full of strawberry blonde curls. He's filthy. <laughs> He's dressed only in a soggy diaper, his face smeared with chocolate. And he looks up and sees you, and you see him, and you lock eyes, and he grins. And it is love at first sight. His name is Baby Harold, because his daddy is Harold, too. Heather and Harold are sitting beside him on the floor of the church hallway, filling out forms so that they can get assistance. And for some reason, for the first time in all those days that you've walked down that hall, you stop, and you sit down, and you begin to talk. They're both unemployed. They've run out of formula and food, and when you ask them where they live, they don't really want to tell you. They change the subject, then they avoid the question until finally they answer that they're sleeping in their car behind the church at night, driving around during the day and taking turns with the baby while the other one goes in to apply for jobs. And it occurs to you in this conversation that today happens to be Wednesday, and this church is in the habit of eating together every Wednesday night as a church family for dinner. Christians eating together as often as possible, some things have not changed since the first century. And you ask them, would they like to come back tonight and join you for dinner? But you're a little surprised when they actually show up. 
they've cleaned themselves up and they've put a little onesie on baby Harold who grins at you and comes into your arms when you offer them. You sit with them at dinner and you introduce them around and people welcome them even though they're clearly different and they talk to you and they tell you their stories and you learn for the first time about how desperately chaotic life is when you're poor. And then one of the church leaders out of the blue surprises you by telling you about a friend who owns a local motel. And he gets them on the cell phone and tells you that they will give them a place to stay tonight so they won't have to sleep in the car. A place to stay for many nights. And somebody goes and unlocks the assistant's office and grabs some gift cards for groceries and gas, and they are thankful to the point of tears for the offer of a hotel room and a bed. And when they leave that night, you wonder if it's the last time you'll ever see them. But next Wednesday night, they're back. (laughs) It's a meal, after all, and as you bounce baby Harold on your knee, you hear their adventures of job hunting and the baby's ear infection and navigating the lines and the paperwork at the free clinic. Weeks pass and they come back, Wednesday after Wednesday. You visit them at the charity hospital when Big Harold has a kidney stone. And then you visit when Big Harold is in the local jail. A misunderstanding, they assure you. And they show up most weeks at your office unannounced in one crisis or another, not for handouts anymore, but because you listen. And mostly because they trust you now that they can see you really love their baby. And eventually they can see you really love them too. And when they're on their feet enough to get an apartment, they choose one right across the street from the church. And now when you look out your window at those ugly apartment complexes, you see them with different eyes. You learn that there's no furniture in the apartment. They're sleeping on the floor. And so on Christmas morning, you you show up under their window outside with a group from the church, and you sing Christmas carols until they hear you and open the window and poke their heads out and see you gathered there with an apartment full of secondhand furniture on the lawn and Christmas breakfast and one gift just from you for baby Harold. And then one Sunday morning, as you're getting ready for worship, you look out and you realize to your shock, they have come to church. They're dressed in cutoffs and work boots And baby Harold is squirming and crying in his diaper, and you hold your breath to see if any of the matriarchs of the church will politely ask them to take him to the nursery. But everyone around them seems kind and welcoming and nice. And that's the morning that they see a baptism happening in the church. And they ask you afterwards, how much money would they have to pay to get little Harold baptized? And you get to tell them, that baptism is free. And they're excited, but they have another big secret to tell they've never gotten married. Did you do a wedding first? So you help Heather get ready for her wedding in that sacred church parlor with no red punch, the precious place reserved for ladies' tea, and she looks beautiful in a secondhand dress. And you ask, her and Harold to repeat their vows in front of that beautiful sanctuary full of stained glass, and the church even throws them a reception in the fellowship hall. Now imagine that you're in church, that church, one Sunday when someone gets up and reads from a letter 
the same letter that was read almost 2,000 years ago to little house churches in Asia Minor, it turns out this letter is still circulating. It's still being read in our churches. It's still speaking to us today. And that morning, you hear these words read in this beautiful place. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And as those words are read, you look out and see a little head full of strawberry blonde curls bobbing up and down. And it's just too much. You have to close your eyes as you hear these words, no longer foreigners, no longer strangers, fellow citizens and members of the household of God. And you pray, please, Jesus, let it be true. Let these words be true. And they come back again and again, and they fight, and they separate, and they get back together. He goes to jail again. He gets out. They can't hold down a job to save their lives. They lose their apartment and have to leave in the middle of the night. And they leave behind all of that furniture and their clothes again. And they get a new apartment, and it starts all over again. And then one day, they don't come back. And you never see them again. And you always wonder about them. Little Harold would be a teenager now. And even if he doesn't remember any of it, you hope that somehow something was built for him in that year, the year you watched him turn one. Imagine that you're in church, your church, or maybe the church you hope to walk out into and serve one day. What will you build together there? What shape will it take who will come? The shape of something has a lot to do, like Ephesians says, with its cornerstone, its starting point. A cornerstone is the largest and the first stone laid for a building. Its edges and angles had to be perfectly aligned since the shape of the cornerstone literally became the shape of the building. If you got the angles of the cornerstone right, the angles of the whole building would be right, even if they weren't right angles. You can tell by the way the life of a church is shaped that it's been shaped around a cornerstone, not the one visible from the outside, but the one we worship inside, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church. And I love that somehow we are still shaping our church around this letter, this letter that's circulating and being read aloud the letter to the Ephesians, the one that has all of these ancient debates about the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the one so foreign to us now, but they remind us. They remind us that every church has its walls. It's the tyranny of the human heart to build dividing walls everywhere we go, even and sometimes especially in the church. But I love this picture of Jesus as the cornerstone because the cornerstone is the place where walls are joined 
together. And the cornerstone shapes them into a building, a structure that reflects the shape of his self-denial and his sacrifice and his holiness. This is a scary time for many in the church because the voices of empire surround it and whisper a false peace that is really tyranny. And when we don't submit to those voices, they threaten to huff and puff and blow us right down. But what I notice about the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is that he has never faltered or fallen under any empire, whether the tyranny of the empire outside the church or the tyranny of the human heart. And when the shape of that cornerstone gets into us, that shape that we have for so long and so beautifully called holiness and piety and mercy, it builds outward in compassion and holy love and begins building additions that we didn't even know were possible. And when these building projects go up around the church, the empire has to stop and stare because they realize no human could build that on their own. No person is shaped in that way. There has to be a stone under there somewhere propping them up. Imagine, one more time if you will, imagine that you're in church. But this time the church looks like the Lexington Bluegrass Airport, the great metropolis that it is. It looks like a group of 50 people huddled together at the bottom of an escalator holding signs of welcome in multiple languages. They've been here so long, it's well after midnight. Flights have been delayed. Pizza has been ordered and consumed. People are tired but still giddy at the prospect of what's about to happen. After over an hour of waiting, they finally see what they're waiting for, a young couple descending the stairs, holding a sleeping child. They are refugees from Syria, no older than our youngest students here. They've lived in a refugee camp in Jordan for three years and been through who knows what. And now they're here and they're exhausted. But for those witnessing this moment, just passers-by, I can't imagine the looks on their faces, this might have been a king and queen arriving. There are signs and applause and balloons and hugs. There's a translator to communicate these words, we are your hosts, your friends. We have been waiting and praying for you. We've prepared a home for you, and we will help you be at home here. There are tears even before the luggage arrives. And then the gathering disperses, and the church walks off into the parking lot. And I'm pretty sure that those standing at the rental car counters and the airport staff and the fellow travelers wonder what in the world they have just witnessed. But I know what I witnessed. I can tell you the shape that I saw there. It was the church. Even in the middle of an airport, it was shaped like the church because the cornerstone was peeking through. Imagine that you're in church. Imagine that the church being built is you the one that proclaims no longer foreigners, no longer strangers, the one built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, the one with Jesus Christ himself as the true cornerstone. 
In him, this whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Let it be true again, Lord. Let it be true. Amen.